Well, I'm not an Islamic scholar. I'm not interested in entering into that debate. But I imagine that you know that there are some people who have these same levels of suspicion about Christianity and Christians. In fact, um, they're, they're, the fear is that, they, that if... Uh, that if a seriously committed follower of Jesus, if, if he or she had power, then they would put women who want to have abortions in jail, they'd outlaw birth control, make prayer in schools mandatory, defund all of our scientific research in the National Endowment for the Arts, and they'd introduce all kinds of new, very stringent forms of censorship. The idea is that Christians and Christianity, they're a threat. They're a threat to, a threat to freedom, to happiness, to, to openness within society. Well, I wanted you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to a passage of the Bible that tells us that, indeed, Christianity is a threat, but maybe not the type of threat that you think it is. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, some of you may be already there this morning as we work our way through this book, but I want to look with you this morning at Acts 21 verse 27. Um, Christianity is a threat, but maybe not the way that you think it is. This is, as we come to this passage here this morning, we are entering in the last 25%, the last quarter of the book of Acts. And in some ways, it's a very strange way for the book to end. The book begins in Jerusalem with, it begins in Jerusalem with the ascension of Christ into heaven. And before he takes his seat at the, at the right hand of his father, he commissions his, his disciples. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have been reading how for uh, over the course of 25 years now, Jesus' followers have been fulfilling this mission that he gave them. And here the action, it seems, comes to a blinding halt in this chapter as the Apostle Paul is arrested. And he's going to spend the rest of the book including a stint of two years in Caesarea behind bars. It's an odd way, I think, to end this book. I mean, uh, Christ's followers all along the way have, have faced challenges in this. Some of them have been martyred for the faith and they've been persecuted. But seven chapters, the prison years, seems odd. Uh, Daryl Bach did some arithmetic. He counted verses. There's, the book of Acts has long speeches that the, the Apostle Paul makes. Uh, do you know that there's more, more material devoted to Paul's speeches where he defends the faith in prison than there are missionary speeches of Paul where he's presenting the gospel to lost people? Why is that? It's odd. Bach says, This shows that Paul, the defender of the faith, is as important, if not more important, than Paul, the preacher of the faith. Hmm, now why is that? We're going to be looking at these seven chapters, Lord willing, over the next, uh, seven, uh, over the next uh, three months. And we're going to see some themes that are going to arise. Over and over again, these themes will come uh, to the fore. Um, these themes have to do with following Christ in a con- against a contrary world. We're going to look at how Paul responded to suffering. What does he do when he suffers in prison? We're going to talk about um, the relationship between church and state. It's here a little bit. These chapters tell us why, if Christianity is so deeply rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, why are Christianity and Judaism so far apart? 
and we're going to look especially uh, next week at how God providence, providentially moves the mission forward. All these themes we're going to see come up repeatedly actually in these last uh, seven chapters. That's what's coming, but what I want to do today is I want to expand on this observation I made a few minutes ago. Christianity is a threat, just not in the way that you might think it is. So let's read here. I want to start reading in Acts 21, verse 27, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter, uh, verse 29 of chapter 22. It's a long passage of scripture. Follow along as I read here. Acts 21, 27. When the seven days, that's seven days of Paul's purification, his ritual purification. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He hadn't really, but that's what they thought. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officials and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The, man, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps... The violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary citizen city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into the prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them and to their associates. from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? me?" Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. 
What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you awaiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and the Lord and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Christianity is a threat, but not the way that you might think it is. First, we're going to talk about how you might think that Christianity is a threat, but it's not. And then we're going to talk about how you might think it's not a threat, but actually it is. Well, uh, let's start here, here. Christianity is not a threat to a government interested in justice. Christianity is not a threat to a government interested in justice. And by that, I don't mean some weird sort of Bible jujitsu justice. I mean Roman justice, justice by Roman standards. Why does that matter? It's an argument that actually the Bible makes a lot, especially in the end here of Acts. Why does it matter? Remember that Acts was written to to a man by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus was, is called Most Excellent Theophilus. And that title makes us think that maybe Theophilus had some official government responsibility. And Theophilus must have been wondering, is my faith in Jesus inconsistent with my work for the Roman government? Can I be a faithful follower of Jesus or does my faith in Jesus threaten the Roman government that I work for now? So that's the issue. And here's how Luke makes this point. He makes a point by contrasting two groups in this passage. First, there are the Jews in Jerusalem. They're a raging, violent mob. They're out of control. 
And then, in contrast to that, there's the Roman commander, a man whose name we learn in Acts 23 is Claudius Lysias. He's the ranking military officer in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews, let's talk about them for a minute here. By describing them here, Luke is returning to a theme in the book of Acts. There is consistent rejection and opposition to the good news about Jesus. Luke's not being anti-Semitic here. Remember that um, the first followers of Jesus are Jewish. There are thousands of Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. We read that last week in the text. But there are also these Jewish leaders, people who have influence and power in the city of Jerusalem who are violently opposed to the church. Do you remember how violently they are? In Acts, in Acts, uh, the early chapters, Peter and John are arrested and they're beaten and they're ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, uh, there's a, a persecution that breaks out that scatters the church. Um, Wherever Paul goes, it seems like those, there's synagogue leaders who are in, opposed to what Paul is doing. And, and here in this story, from a human perspective, it's, it's their opposition to Paul that's moving the story forward here. Now, in contrast to that, there is the Roman commander. He, he starts, he doesn't know what's going on. He intervenes, in effect, he kind of rescues Paul. Rescues Paul from being killed by this mob. And then, as as the story goes on, he becomes increasingly friendly to the faith. When he learns that Paul isn't the terrorist that he thought, he thought he was some Egyptian terrorist, when he learns that Paul's not the Egyptian terrorist, he allows Paul to speak to the crowd. I think maybe the commander thinks that the crowd may be confused about who Paul is, just like he was, and that if Paul can address them, uh, they'll know who he is. (laughs) The crowd's not confused. Um. He, he rescues Paul, we'll find out next week, from a plot against his life. Um, he gives Paul his due as a citizen here, later in the, in the chapter that we read. In chapter 23, he writes a letter to his commanding officer, and he tells him that Paul hasn't done anything worthy of imprisonment or death. Christianity is not a threat to Rome. It's not a threat, at least in this way. Christians aren't insurrectionists. They don't uh, incite mobs. They don't incite rebellions. Actually, maybe we should clarify this a little bit, shouldn't we? Because we have 2,000 years of history to look at. Christianity is not a threat like that, at least in the Christianity that is embodied here by Paul, whose goal in all of these chapters is to represent Jesus Christ. These are the terms under which Christianity is not a threat. Two things. Number one, when the government is interested in justice and when Christ's followers lead for, argue, and defend the gospel. Those are the conditions under which Christianity is not a threat. And when either one of those things is out of whack, when Christians are not about the gospel and when the government is not interested in justice, inevitably there will be great conflict that will occur. But under these conditions... With the government interested in justice, even the Roman government interested in justice, and Christianity, uh, Christians with their focus on Christ, it's not a threat. Christianity is not a threat. Notice here, Paul is not arguing about his right to bear arms. He's not protesting against paying higher taxes. He's not centered on the immigration laws within the Roman Empire. He's not opposing Caesar's executive orders. 
When Jesus stood before Pilate and and Pilate asked him about his kingdom, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight, but it's not. This should make you think. This should make you think about what you emphasize or what excites you or what drives you to post on Facebook your opinions. When, when you, uh, what, what you really get worked up about when you face contrary winds. When the government is interested in justice and Christians have an appropriate centeredness on the gospel, Christianity is not a threat. It doesn't mean we disengage. It doesn't mean we pull back. It doesn't mean we don't have opinions about these things. But it's not, we're not a threat. Not at least in, in that way. What's interesting is Paul has a very unusual attitude. I think an attitude you should consider adopting. One of the things that we see and we learn about Paul is that everywhere he went from prison to prison and trial to trial, Paul recognized that in every place he had new opportunities to represent Jesus Christ. It may not be your plan ever to sit in a surgeon's office. I I doubt that anybody has ever gladly gone to a surgeon's office. But perhaps your presence there is God's appointed means for you to represent Jesus in that place. Don LeMaster asked us to pray for him on Wednesday night at prayer meeting and said, cancer's the only way that you can make an appointment to see an oncologist. And it's a wonderful way to speak about Jesus Christ. Uh, to people who may never attend a church service or listen to a sermon or turn their radio to DAC, what if you saw what if you saw every place that you go and every circumstance you find yourself in as a place where by his own appointment God wants you to represent Christ? If you lose your job and you end up at the employment office, maybe it's God's intention that you be there for Christ's sake. Um You might not want to meet that insurance adjuster after you've been in an accident, but what if Christ is there, wants you to be there? Or if you're, think about it, if your daughter didn't love ballet so much, you might never have the chance to meet that dance instructor or those other parents in that environment. Now be careful here. If you get detention at school and your dad says, what happened? Don't say, the only way those kids in detention could hear about Jesus is for me not to do my homework. I'm on mission, right? Don't say that. But look around at where you are. At where you are. Do you see it for what it is? See, what Paul saw prison for as as a place to represent Christ in those circumstances, in that place, The Romans looked at what Paul was doing and they recognized that Christianity is not a threat. Now, secondly, then here we should talk about the threat that it is. There's this Jewish mob in contrast to Claudius. And there's actually something that they understood very clearly about Christianity. They understood, they seem here to understand that the threat that Christianity does uh, pose. I want to suggest to you that Christianity is a threat and at least... Uh, three ways. I'm going to mention three. It's probably a threat and more, but at least three, three ways. First of all, notice Christianity is a threat to your self-produced goodness. 
it's, it's a threat to your self-produced goodness. Oh, we need to hear this. We are good people. We're church people. In chapter 22 here, we have Paul's um, testimony. Paul's testimony is told three times in the book of Acts. Very important to Luke. And the first time in Acts 9, Luke tells the story. And here in Acts 22 and later in Acts, I think, 26, Paul tells the story in his own words. And in, in the first uh, three, uh, uh, in verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul describes uh, his righteousness, how good of a person he was. He tells the crowd, listen, I'm as zealous for the law as you were. You are. Uh, I was born in a good city of Tarsus in those days um, where you were born was an indication of your character. Um, so uh, I, I, I was born in Tarsus. I was raised here in Jerusalem. I was taught by the best legal law Moses expert alive at the time, Gamaliel. I, I was intense about the temple. I, I can match you zeal for zeal at every point. I even went, I even went and I arrested people who were trusting in Jesus. Now, Daryl Bach again says, don't miss the irony here because Paul's standing here in chains <laughs> for being a follower of Jesus, telling them about how he used to arrest people who were followers of Jesus. Irony there. And then in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 22, he says, I was there when Stephen was, was executed. I held your clothes while you threw stones at him. What did all this mean for Paul? Well, Philippians 3, he tells us what he was trying to do under those conditions. Paul was trying to amass for himself a perfect record, a life that was good enough to earn God's approval. It doesn't work this way. I'm sure that Paul did not have this pictured in his mind this way, but just follow me here for, for a minute here. Last week, Nick Brightbill was here from the Gideons, and he, he spoke to us about how he asked people a question about heaven all the time. So he says to people that he meets, if you were standing before God and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what, should, what would you say? Well, now, what would Paul say before he met Christ? What would he have said? He would have said, I've kept the law perfectly. I have, I have respected the temple I've persecuted and jailed people who abandoned the traditions and followed Jesus. Now I can imagine this. This is not how it happens. But imagine at that moment Paul says, hey, I've persecuted the followers of Jesus. You should let me into heaven. God says, oh, have you met my son? <laughs> it's not good. Paul was climbing the ladder of his own righteousness, but it was leaning against the wrong wall. It's impossible to be good enough to please God. That's what most people actually believe. But if it were true, Paul, of anyone alive, could have done it. What happens is that Jesus Christ dismantles Paul's goodness. Do you, do you know that there are two ways to refuse to have Jesus as your Savior? There's two ways. Um, we think a lot because we're good people. We want to think about this. There's the rebellious way to refuse to have Jesus as your Savior. You can reject him. You can do what you want. But there's a good way, to re a good people way to refuse Jesus as your Savior too. It's the way of earning your own salvation, being good enough on your own that you don't need a Savior. Paul's devastated here by the appearance of the Lord Jesus in the sky. It was so bright. It was blinding to him. Actually, 
Some scholars think that Paul may be alluding to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says, The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. The Lord Jesus, even in the midst of Paul's goodness, it it devastates him, blinds him. Well, what should Paul have done? Ananias tells him what he should do. Verse 16, call on his name for the washing away of your sins. Believe and be baptized. Paul is saying here, Jesus is the Savior who lived the life that I was trying to live, this perfect life before God. And Jesus is the one who died the death that I deserved to die. Christianity is a threat. It is a threat to your self-produced goodness. It is a threat to your effort to please God with your own accumulation of good deeds. How can you, I wonder how you can tell, how can you tell if you understand the threat that Christianity poses to your goodness? There's probably a lot of ways. When Paul felt threatened by this, the Bible tells us Paul was a very angry person. So when his goodness was threatened or the the quality of his goodness, Paul got angry. I think that's why he was so angry at Christians who were were saying that, that God welcomes people in Jesus not because of their goodness. It made Paul so angry. One of the ways uh, maybe in your life that you can tell, you, you show that you're addicted to your own goodness because when you fail, you get morose, you get depressed, you, get, you turn inward and away from God, you're slow to confess. You, you, you know what you're revealing in that moment? You're revealing in that moment that you are more devastated at your own work than you are delighted in the work of Jesus. What happens when you fail to meet your own standards? How do you respond? Maybe an indication of whether or not you've understood this threat that Christianity poses to your goodness. Now, here's the second way that Christianity is a threat here. Uh, It's closely related to the first one. Christianity is a threat to your pride. It's a threat to your pride. This is an interrupted speech in the book of Acts. A lot of speeches in the book of Acts get interrupted. Stephen gets interrupted in Acts 6, and Paul gets interrupted in Acts 17, and now he gets interrupted here. He gets interrupted when he mentions the Gentiles. He's about to talk about why he was in the city with Gentiles. I think he's about to explain some of the things that Heather read from Ephesians 3 a few minutes ago, and he mentions the Gentiles, and the crowd just erupts. When you are earning your own way, when you're producing your own goodness, One of the ways to deal with your failures is to elevate yourself and put others down. This is an expression of insecurity. See, you compare yourself with other people. Well, I may not be perfect before God, but I'm better than he is, better than she is. Uh, If your identity is wrapped up in being a perfect parent, uh, and it's where you find your significance, every other parent with every other skill set, is a threat to your own sense of well-being. If if your identity is wrapped up in your work, every time the nail doesn't go in straight, or the board isn't cut right, or the lesson doesn't go as well as you want, every every other uh, uh, builder, every other teacher is a threat to you. And, And you will be a divisive person and never a loving person. People, though, in contrast, who grasp 
the grace of God, they realize that they're not in a competition with other people. They're not trying to beat the curve. They're not competing with others for credit, for plaudits, or for the approval of other people. When you grasp the grace of God, you can actually love them and encourage them and help them. This week, our, our growth groups are going to start this study. It's a wonderful study of this book uh, called Side by Side by Ed Welch. I hope if you haven't signed up for your growth group, I hope that you will. It's about mutual encouragement. That encouragement only works when we really grasp the grace of God, the fact that we're all sinners, that we're all dependent on Christ. Christianity is a threat to you, to your pride. You cannot be awesome in your own mind and trust in Christ at the same time. Now, here's the third threat that Christianity brings. Christianity is a threat to your self-definition. Christianity is a threat to your self-definition. Part of Paul's testimony here is about how the Lord Jesus turned his life upside down. Verse 10, you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. Verse 14, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. That's astounding. Here's Paul's credentials as an apostle. You're going to see Jesus. You're going to hear him speak. He's going to teach you, as a matter of fact. Remember 1 Corinthians 11. For what I received, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Well, where did Paul receive that? Who told him that? I think Jesus did. You're going to see Jesus. He's going to teach you. Verse 18, he's praying. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, you're going to leave Jerusalem. Paul says, really? Do I have to go? Yes, you have got to go. Uh, it's clear Paul's not in control of his life anymore, at least not as much as he used to be, or maybe even as much as he wants to be. This is what Christianity does. It's a threat to your self-definition. Charles Taylor is a writer and a philosopher. He writes very difficult and challenging books, and I will be honest to tell you I haven't read them. But I've read smart people who've read Charles Taylor. And uh, Charles Taylor writes that we live, he says that we live in a culture of authenticity. That's what he calls our culture today, a culture of authenticity. It used to be in more traditional cultures and honor cultures, the way that you... Uh, to, the way that you were a hero, the way that you fulfilled um, your destiny, if I can use that word, was to take the role that your society expects you to take, that you're to do what your parents or your upbringing or your family, your society prepares you to do. That's how you're a hero in honor cultures and traditional societies. But today, in our culture, you are a hero if you break out of the constraints of society and your family and their expectations and be the authentic you. Think about the television shows or the movies or the books that you read, the adventure stories. Who's the hero? The hero is the one who breaks out of the mold, who, who does, rebels against society and their parents and, and expresses themselves. Because sometimes you just, you just have to let it go. You can't hold it back anymore. They'll tell you to conceal and not feel. But you can't do that. Tim Keller makes that connection. Of course, there's a lines from that, that movie Frozen. Three billion people have seen that song on, on YouTube. You just got to let it go. And express yourself. and Be the authentic you. Uh, we live in this culture of, of self-definition. Be the authentic you. 
And, you know, here actually explains why some of our conversations about human sexuality go off the rails. We're talking in one sense, we, we traditional people, we, we talk about morality and about rules and about design, which is good. The Bible talks about oh, those things. But we're in conversation with people who want to talk to us about their identity and their self-expression. And, and why would you want to, with your antiquated rules, keep me from being the person that I know I am, that I'm supposed to be, that I feel in my bones that I really am, and I need to express myself. And your rules are restri- constraining me from being the authentic me. You're trying to stifle me. But, but this story is, is about something better here than trusting yourself, expressing yourself. See, the problem is you can't trust yourself. You are not a reliable enough person to build your life on. But you can trust Jesus because he is reliable enough. He's the righteous one. He's the one who comes with overwhelming glory. He's the one who rescues Paul from the mess of his life that he's making. He is more trustworthy than you are. He's more trustworthy than you are even when that's hard to believe. I want to choose for myself. But Jesus comes and he offers something better, namely himself. You you probably know this, at least you should. In moments of temptation... A verse that comes to my mind often, Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared to us, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's it's his grace, it's his kindness that he intervenes to tell us, "Don't, don't try to define yourself. You're not trustworthy, but I am, Jesus says. There's a lot in this book. Oh, there's a lot in this book that you might find offensive or that might cause questions in your mind. You know that you have questions. You have questions about how this book celebrates God's sovereignty so much. Some of you might have questions about what it says about manhood and womanhood or or questions about the ferocity of God's wrath. Maybe that offends you a little bit. Do you know my guess is that with this book, you're not offended enough, actually, at what it says. Um, It's most likely that you're not threatened enough by what it says about you. It's a threat. This this is a threat. It's a threat to your identity. It's a threat to the security that you've built for yourself. Um, It's a threat to your right to define yourself. But the threat that it brings comes with the beauty of what, more importantly, of who it offers. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great mercy through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We can read this testimony of the Apostle Paul. Um, Though he was a persecutor of your church and an angry person and someone who's trying to earn his own way into uh, your good graces, you intervened. Lord Jesus, you appeared to him and rescued him. You're, You're so good. Father, we need to hear that because we confess to you that we are seemingly addicted to building our own lives, establishing our own goodness, setting our own paths, expressing ourselves in our own authenticity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you confront us 
and that you offer us mercy and grace. Oh, that we would embrace that. And so doing, he would crush our pride and make us ones who are able to encourage and love one another. Do this, we ask, according to your kindness and by your spirit. And we pray these things together, saying, Amen.